If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Being an independent or rather interdependent media platform, which does not take corporate sponsors, we do need to meet our Patreon goal to be able to keep the show going. And I know and I'm so confident that if everyone listening to this backed us starting at just $2, it really adds up makes a huge difference for us and we would reach our goal in no time so to support the future of our people-powered show you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer also we just launched our relaunched our weekly newsletter so if you want our episodes recommended resources and juicy takeaways sent to you you can sign up at greendreamer.com and now on to today's episode where we're speaking with karen washington and we need to get back into the culture aspect of agriculture, the healing aspect, the love, the, the land stewardship action of agriculture, the different cultures that make agriculture, the diversity, the inclusiveness. And how do we think about climate change, ecology, based on the fact that it's the ecosystem of diversity and, and inclusion that makes the world work. Karen is the co-owner and farmer at Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York. An activist and food advocate in 2010, Karen co-founded Black Urban Growers, and in 2012, she was voted by Ebony Magazine as one of their 100 most influential African Americans in the country. She was also a recipient of the James Beard Leadership Award, and today serves on the boards of the New York Botanical Gardens, Mary Mitchell Center, Soulfire Farm, and Black Farmer Fund. Karen grew up in New York, first pursued the career of being a physical therapist for 37.5 years, never having thought much about her relationship with food, until she moved into the Bronx where she had a backyard to grow food with. So she begins here by sharing how she became an outspoken advocate for food justice. So while I was in the garden, I started to look at the relationship between food and health because so many people 
within the garden were having diet-related diseases, as well as my patients who, believe it or not, were once farmers. Many of my patients came from the South or Latin America or from Puerto Rico. And so they were farmers and they grew food. And I used to have those conversations about them with them when I was, you know, telling them that I was a, a gardener and I was a farmer and it was, oh, Ms. Washington was so such hard work. But then when I would talk about food and how how fresh and how good it was, you know, they would say, Ms. Washington, you're absolutely right. The food was so fresh. We never went to a grocery store. We got everything from the farm and look at me now. And most of them had type two diabetes, hypertension, obesity, heart disease. And a lot of it was related to the food because in my neighborhood, when you would go into supermarkets or the bodegas, you would see the colors of fruits and vegetables. But what you would see is mostly processed food, junk food, and fast food. And so I became an activist because I was saying in the greatest country in the world where we grow enough food and we waste enough food, that food is not getting down to the people that need it the most. And why is it that number one, healthy food is so expensive. And number two, we all know where the crappy food ends up in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color and that all the fresh locally grown produce ends up in more affluent white neighborhoods. Mm. Can you talk more about what you noticed as a farmer serving a low income, a lower income neighborhood in terms of the roadblocks preventing food justice and reclaiming community based agency over food and healing? I live in an area in the Bronx where I'm surrounded by a charity based subsidized food system of food pantries and soup kitchens. And don't get me wrong, they do an excellent job. But the fact that they've been inundated in our communities and people have been using them as grocery stores, it came a time when I, as I was bringing food down at the farmer's market, to have a hard conversation with my community about the cost and value of food. Because as a farmer, and as a farmer that runs with my friends a for-profit farm, we're not a non-profit farm, so we're out to make money to sustain ourselves as, a, as a, a way of living, is having those hard conversations about the cost and value of food, that the food is not free, that you have to pay for it, whether you pay for it in cash, pay for it with coupons, or with your EBT, there's a cost and value of food. And that's very, very hard to communicate initially in communities that for so long have been under this charity-based system of free food. And mm -hmm. so having that hard conversation, you know, with my peeps was very, very important, especially, you know, when I would talk about them in terms of the food that uh, I'm bringing to the market and how much it costs. And at the same time, there's, you know, they're haggling over the course of beets and carrots and I'm looking down on their feet and I'm seeing Jordan sneakers or I'm looking at <laughs> their hands and they're holding on a Samsung Galaxy or iPhone and they just got their hair did and their nails did. And it's like, what? So, you know, laughing is a laughing matter and a conversation that I can have with my community is that I'm looking at your phone that I'm pretty sure you put a lot of minutes on it. You put a lot, you spent a lot of money putting those minutes on that phone, but yet you're talking about a problem paying $2 for food. And I think 
That's a major conversation we need to have within our community that we don't have. And that's the cost and value of food. Why should we have that conversation when food is being dumped and given out free? So again, a subject that's really, really delicate, but a subject that needs to happen within our community. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you've shared how a lot of these food pantries and food kitchens are meant for emergency situations, and yet they've increasingly been normalized as what many rely on as a part of their day-to-day lives. And again, this isn't to say that food aid doesn't have a role and hasn't helped feed people who are food insecure, but I also wonder if these forms of charity have become a part of this nonprofit industrial complex that is actually helping to uphold the existing system. Yes, and I'm, at this point in time, I'm very, very vocal about the nonprofit food system that is predominantly white-led that are working in communities of color. It's time for you to leave. It's time for the umbilical cord to be cut and to leave because you come under the auspices of developing leadership, educating communities. You're talking about equity. You're talking about food justice. And yet you're still here. You're still here 10, 12, 14 years, even 20. You're still here. So when does it come a time where that leadership shifts? And when does it come a time when we start dealing with the causes of hunger and poverty? And I say that, like you like you mentioned, there is a place for soup kitchen food pantries. We saw that being played out during COVID. We saw that the need for people just lost their job or they that's that's what it's there for. However, it's not there for for you to use Monday through Saturday each and every day, you know, get your canned goods, get your groceries, and that's it. There has to come a time whereby you're asking people exactly what is it that you want? What is it, what's happening? that you are on this line. So say for instance, and I say this time and time again, if you're on the line because you don't have a job, well, we have services right here that can help you with jobs. Or I'm here because I'm homeless. We have services right here that can help you with your home's housing situation. Or domestic violence. We have you know, services that, so we need to have social services within food pantries and soup kitchens to ask the question, why are you on this line instead of just handing out food and making yourself feel good? Mm. Yeah, it's always important to keep contextualizing the problems and understanding the underlying conditions that led people to where they are. As we orient towards the visions that we want to work towards, there are different terminologies that people will use, be it food security, which might be more so the food aid type forms of charity that we just talked about. There's also food justice or food sovereignty. I know you mentioned that a lot of these words with meaningful movements behind them have been co-opted, but I wonder if you could first speak to the differences between these visions, security, justice, sovereignty, and the ways that they might have been watered down and ways that actually take away from the movement's power. Yeah, so all those three words you mentioned, Food security, food justice, food sovereignty. They've been called, they've been called, every, everybody knows that they don't know the true meaning. First of all, we talk about really it's like food insecurity because they want to be food secure. So it's food insecurity. And so, in order to be more food secure, 
you know, the powers that be is like, wait a second, if you want to be more food secure, all you got to do is give up soda and drink water and maybe grow a little, you know, have a plot and grow little vegetables. Oh, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables without looking at the social determinants that reinforce racism. Hello, have that conversation. Oh, so we're going to talk about food justice. So food justice works on the inequities we see in the food system to try to eliminate the inequities we see in the food system. But if you look closely at the definition, it's the transformation of the equities that we see in the food system. So I always focus on that word transformation because again, if we're talking about food justice, it's not a passive movement, which tends to be what people talk about. You know, we talk about justice and this is what we do. It's an active movement. And so if you're talking about food justice, you're talking about how you are actively participating in working on the injustices that you see, the social injustice that you see, the social injustice around race, gender, social injustice you see about access to land, the social injustice you see about a wealth inequality. All of these things that we need to be working on if we're talking about food justice. Number three, food sovereignty, co-op, because that definition came out of the global south of peasants, La Via Capesina, really were, were the group that really brought food sovereignty to the forefront because they talked about self-governance. They talked about the ability to transfer power back into the hands of marginalized people. They talk about ownership and controlling their own food system. What culturally appropriate food? And so again, powers that be tag onto these little buzzwords, pad their RFP, pad their applications for funding and make themselves feel like they're in the sort of the in crowd when it comes to the food movement means nothing to me because I want to know what are you actively doing to help eradicate hunger and poverty, to help develop leadership within marginalized communities, to help transfer power back into the hands of people who have been marginalized by people who have power over them for so many years. What does it mean in terms of building social capital and communal wealth? What does it mean to invest in the community? What does it mean to let go of extractive corporations and extractive capitalistic ideals that continue to take wealth away from our community and start having these hard conversations? And so those words mean nothing to me unless I see what you are actively doing. What are you doing to change the system? And a lot of the focus for so long has been in the laps of people of color. You know, we're the ones that's supposed to be helping whites figure out things. I, we're tired of it. We're tired of having those conversations because the conversations don't need to happen within community of color because we already know what our problems are. The conversation needs to have within wealthy white communities. The questions that they need to have is like, why is there hunger and poverty? Why is there different in the food that one eats based on race? Why is it that affluent people have more access to wealth, to housing, to food, to you name it? All, all those things, the materialistic things, why is it that there's such a discrepancy 
along race, along economics, and even with housing and education, there is a big difference. And that's a conversation that black and brown people don't need to have because we've been having it for centuries. That's a conversation that whites and people in power need to have amongst themselves. Right. So on that note, there are a lot of people and conferences talking about all sorts of food issues, food justice, the future of food, who are personally very removed and maybe out of touch from the communities or farm workers who face the brunt of these crises. And a lot of these discourses, unfortunately, are being driven also by moneyed interests who tend to skew the conversation towards individualistic and consumerist interpretations of systemic and social crises. So I'm curious to hear your perspectives on what is often left out in those dominant narratives around what needs to be done or the reasons for the crises to begin with that you feel like isn't being addressed. What's not being addressed is the voices of the communities that are being affected. That's the bottom line. Policy, laws, are made top-down. You're never asking the people who are affected. You never come in and ask the voices or opinions of the people where the harm is being done. Where in the scheme of the food system are the voices of people of color in the decision-making process? And I say that loud and clear from board of directors, to people with upper management, to people, you know, it, the people with power and privilege, like I said, we need to have those conversations because for so long, those conversations have been made by outsiders. And so things have to change and things are gonna change. I'm 67 years of age. And so people ask me like what the future looks like. I am so glad to see this robust young movement that is out there that wants to see change and are marching for change and demanding change and, 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 and demanding conversations, demanding to be into the conversation and decision-making process, you know, and boots on the ground. That's what, I, that's what I see within my community is this sort of activism of people understanding the power that they have. You know what COVID has really shown for me? People are complaining that you know, we're coming out of COVID now and people are finding hard to get people to come back into hospitality, into healthcare, into retail. And it's like, yeah, because now you understand that they are quote unquote essential workers and they need to be paid, essential worker paid, and they need to be paid and given childcare and healthcare. And all those things that you said that these are the essential workers, because right now you realize without them, they, they have the glue that makes this country fit and work. And so without their input, now you see how important they are. So now if you really care about quote unquote essential workers, number one, they need to be paid a living wage. Number two, they need to have health care. Number three, they need to have child care. And number four, they need to own part of your business. How about that? They need to have a buy-in part of your business so that it's form of cooperative. So if you have a restaurant, they need to be invested in that restaurant. 
Whenever I speak to people who focus on and understand the true vision, not the watered down versions of food justice and food sovereignty, the conversations are always centered around power rather than the sort of technical practices of land care being used. And more importantly, the idea of health, ecology, culture, and power aren't separated into different conversations, but are really wrapped together in the same vision tied with one another. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how power disparities within the food system relate to how the land is being treated through the practices and, you know, whether healing the land and therefore helping to address ecological breakdown and the climate crisis might be an eventual byproduct of first decentralizing power. Well, first of all, we have to talk about the word agriculture. And I think for me, and I've said this time and time, we have, we have lost the root definition of agriculture, and that is culture. We've mm -hmm. lost that in agriculture, and we need to get back into the culture aspect of agriculture, the healing aspect, the love, the, the land stewardship action of agriculture, the different cultures that make agriculture, the diversity, the inclusiveness of agriculture, and start having those hard conversations about, okay, so let's talk about how this country was built. Let's talk about how this country was built on the back of enslaved and indigenous people. Let's talk about the different ethnicities that have built, have built into agriculture. Let's talk about how do we change a food system that dignifies all types of inputs and how do we think about climate change, ecology, based on the fact that it's the ecosystem of diversity and, and inclusion that makes the world work. And I say that because for so long we have been working in silos and we work towards individualism. And as a result, we become fantasized in sort of this monoculture sort of thing, how we, how we look at and how we view the world. We view the world in terms of individualism, and our, on our viewpoint is just into, you know, how do we get to the next sort of phase and I, without even looking at, you know what? If we look at our planet, we should admire diversity and we don't do that. We tend to focus on this monolithic sort of viewpoint. That's, that's number one. And number two, what's important is like, let's go back to the basis of the land and how do we, even think about land ownership in terms of the economics of owning land. For me, it boils down to not owning land because let's face it folks, life is short on this planet. So how do you own something that after maybe 80, 90 years, you offer this planet, you still own it? So for me, it's like, it's not about owning land is that how do we become stewards of the land? Because in essence, we can't own land because we don't live long enough to own anything. So how do we own, you know, I, I could, you know, I sat down one day and I said, how do you own something when your life is measured in ages? You know what I'm saying? So like by 80, 90, you're finished. So you still own that land? You, you, you still, so we have to sort of, to get away from owning things because you can't own things if you would equate that to years and age, because once you're gone, 
you don't own it. So let's talk about how do we think about agriculture, the ecosystem of diversity in terms of being stewards of land, even land that we get from reparations. You know, we have to make sure that we never replicate the oppressor. And so that if the land goes back into the hands of indigenous people, black and brown people, whoever, that the concept is no longer about land ownership. The concept is about land stewardship. And if we can talk about land stewardship, then we can also talk about how do we bring in healing and love into the equation. In my past conversation with Leah Penniman of Slow Fire Farm, we had touched on how generational traumas for descendants of enslaved peoples forced to work on plantations may have played a role in furthering the present day disconnection that a lot of people have with the land due to that painful association. So what has it meant for your personal healing to have cultivated this intimate relationship with the land, which has also allowed you to create space to connect with and build community? I'm 67 years of age and I had no idea. Like I said, we've moved away from the land. So I had no idea how important it was a connection to land was because I grew up with people telling me that the land was harmful. I grew up with people telling me that farming was slave work. I grew up with people telling me never think about owning land back in the South, you know, move away from the land. Or I had people telling me the best way, you know, the best way of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is to get a job and have a house, nice house, and have a a nice car, and you live happily ever after. And it wasn't until I became more involved in farming and started to understand and read about the history of agriculture through the lens of a Black person. Because I have gone to so many conferences and workshops that are all white frame. And you sit there in workshops and you sit in conferences and you don't see people that look like you. You don't see people who are speaking that look like you. And so your reference point is always around white people. And so to be able to step away from that and really dig into my own history as a Black woman, as an African-American woman, knowing that my ancestors came here because of their knowledge of agriculture and taught this country how to work on fields and taught this country how to sow seeds and how to cultivate and how to irrigate, even from management of soil, even in the management of soil down to culinary, down to the culinary foods that we eat, the part that the African-American experience has been negated when it comes to the history of agriculture, when it comes to the culinary foods that we eat, to all of a sudden understanding our place here, it has opened my mind, My it has opened a door that for so long has been shut, that for, for most of my life, I had no idea the truth was hidden. But now that I know the truth, I tend to, like, like, like my daughter, Leah Pediment, 
is to open up that, that Pandora's box and open up the, the light into the true meaning of why we were brought here as Africans and our contribution to not only Black history, but American history. And I think that is fueling some of the racist tactics and things that are happening around race when whites feel that, you know, oh, well, they need to pull themselves up with their bootstraps because this is what we did. No, you no, you had you 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 had a leg up. You know, you have people who who had wealth. Our wealth was taken away from us. Our land was taken away from us. And so to have those hard conversations that we need to have in this country and how wealth was built, the fact that 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 slaves built the White House, you think that we had that in school? Do you think that we had that notion that slaves built the White House in school? A lot of the stuff has been negated from us. And to finally have a, a breath of fresh air, this freedom, understanding the true meaning of American history and our place in history has been powerful. Before we go into our lightning round closing questions, as we look to our paths forward, what are some of your calls to action for our listeners and some of the most impactful ways you think people can support the decentralization of power in the food system? I tell, first of all, three, for, this is for the people with power. You got three things. Either you share it, give it up, or it's going to be taken away from you. Those are the three things. Those are my three things. Share it. Give it up and be taken away from you. Very hard to do, but that's it, it's going to happen whether you like, like it or not. As the country becomes more diverse, maybe I would say 15, 20 years from now, the majority of people will be people of color and the minority of people will be whites. And so let's start, start talking about how that power shift is eventually going to happen. But what I always say when that power shift does happen, do not replicate the oppressor. And I think whites, are, and this is why you're seeing, you know, things about voter suppression, whites are trying to uh, bring a lot of these falsehoods. The bottom line is that it's, it's scary. It's scary to see all of a sudden this integration, this diversity of people coming to the forefront and the fear that, you know what, what we've done to them, they're going to do to us. And so there's a sort of scare tactic all, you know, because pretty soon they're going to move into my neighborhoods and they're going to have my jobs and all these things instead of embracing diversity and inclusion. So that's number one. Number two, and the food movement, ask questions. You know, I would love everybody to be a farmer, but you can be a conscientious consumer. And what do I mean by conscientious consumer is to start asking those hard questions going to a grocery store and ask where the food comes from. Ask those questions, especially those with power and privilege. I ask the call to action to say, why is there a difference in the food system of black and brown people and low income people than the food that we have in our neighborhood? Then also call to action, coming to communities of color or coming to communities that not like your community and see, this it's a robust community of people getting by with limited resources, but yet have the same value of wanting to live a fruitful life that you have. But yet they're not given the opportunity, the resources, the capital to do that. So then how do people with power and privilege shift that to make sure that 
the people in the lower rung are given the opportunity to measure up and to move up in the system, be it the economic system, the food system. So something to think about. And lastly, is to be proactive instead of reactive. Don't wait for things to happen to all of a sudden to react. Be proactive. Right now, there's a bill before from the USDA about giving access to having Black farmers credit and debt taken away so that they have more opportunity to, to, to have land. And the Black Farmer Act is being criticized mostly by white farmers who claim that is racial discrimination. But yet, if you look at the economic system, whites have 10 times more wealth than Blacks, 10 times more when it comes to land ownership. And so those are the things that we needed to talk about. And lastly, get involved, get involved locally. You know, there's so many federal and, and state laws and, and regulations. And I tell people to start local. For me, I, I love to say more urban spaces for community gardens and urban farms, more opportunity for people to have opportunity for ownership of their businesses, more capital coming into uh, low-income neighborhoods to talk about investment and what that looks like. So those are some of the the things I would like to see. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Two books that I'm reading, which is really good. I'm reading We Are Each Other's Harvest. And that book is by Natalie Brazil, who's very, very good. And in that book, she talks about the plight of the Black farmers. And she talks about the stories of Black farmers, you know, how they were able to obtain land and difficulties they've had getting land and some some farmers have lost land, but yet this this resiliency of Black people, voices that people have not heard on why land is so important to them, that legacy, which is important. And then another book that I'm starting, I started and I'm trying to finish is The Some of Us. It's by Heather McGee. And what she's trying to say is that if you support and making sure that people who are in poverty, if you're giving them the opportunity to build wealth, everybody succeeds. What are your personal mottos or what practices do you engage with to stay grounded? I pray every day. I pray every day. I wake up, I'm thankful for my life. I'm thankful for the environment around me. I stop and I notice clouds. I notice the sky. Take a moment 
to look at what God has given and to be thankful. And when I'm on land upstate, I'm thankful. And I say to the ancestors out in the air that I'm thankful for the privilege of being a steward of the land that I'm on. Mm. And what has been some of your biggest personal inspirations lately? So I think um, the Black Farmer Fund that a group of us started in 2000, the late December 2019, when we had this idea of starting a fund for Black farmers and Black businesses in New York State, and people thinking that we were crazy because we had no financial background, and getting a young person by the name of Olivia, we call her Olive, coming in and really talking about you know, financial literacy, social capital, and, and communal wealth, and starting this fund. And we were able to accrue over $1.5 million, million and seeing Olivia Watkins as this new CEO. As a matter of fact, she was Forbes 30 or 30, and I just recently made Forbes 50 or 50. Mm-hmm. And to see both of us make Forbes list and having this fund now giving out grants and loans to uh, Black farmers in New York State has been very inspirational because so many doubters that we could do it. So many people didn't believe in us. And uh, I'm so proud that that is happening now that we have the money to give to Black farmers and Black businesses in New York State. And it comes from the decision-making process of the community. So it's not in a room with some, you know, four or five people making the decisions on how this money is going to be vetted. It's the community at large that's making the decision and how the money is being vetted. So I am proud and I'm inspired by that. Well, we are coming to a close, but to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Karen's work, you can head to her websites, riseandrootfarm.com, as well as karenthefarmer.com. She's also on Facebook at Karen Young Washington and Twitter at K-A-R-W-A-S-H-E-R. Where might people go to support the Black Farmers Fund that you mentioned? Yeah, so you just can go to blackfarmerfund.org. And um, yeah, you know, look at what we're doing. Look how we are changing the narrative of what Black businesses look like, what social capital and communal wealth looks like, how base building, again, you help the people who for so long have been marginalized, you help all farmers. So you're not only helping Black farmers, but you're also helping all farmers to succeed. And that's very, very important. Well, thank you so much for this nourishing and enriching discussion. And thank you so much for your leadership in orienting food activism towards justice and sovereignty. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Yes. So believe it or not, I'm just an ordinary person. I just saw injustice and I found a way to call it out. And so that's what I want you all in the audience, Green Dreamers, to when you see injustice, call it out, say what it is and work on that. I think I wanna leave that with your listeners. 
This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show to continue starting at just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Also, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is American Trilogy by First Nations Elvis, provided to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, our production manager is Tammy Gunn, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.